lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota, and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. In today's show, I'm sharing my conversation about organic potting soil with Mark Highland of Organic Mechanics. That's coming up after the Garden News Roundup. But first, I'd like to start out with a reminder about our Facebook group. It's free and easy to join. All you have to do is go to Facebook and search for the Still Growing Podcast Group, and then just click to join. Or you can go to my website at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. It's also the home of the Still Growing Podcast. And then right in the main menu, there's a link to the Facebook group. You'll see it right there. Just click on it. It'll take you right into the group and then just click to join. And if you're listening to this episode and like what you hear, you should definitely join the group. Not only are there great giveaways for listeners, but in addition to sharing the Garden News Roundup and conversations about gardening, I'm planning to organize some meetups at public gardens around the United States this summer. So if you're not yet a member of the listener community on Facebook. I'd love for you to join for free. Just head over to the Facebook group and it's called Still Growing Podcast Group. Just search for that and it'll pop right up. Well, last week I mentioned that on the 20th of March, I had surgery for rotator cuff. So I batch produced this episode before I went into surgery. And I had a few new members of the group that I still needed to recognize. So I want to officially welcome them now. I want to welcome Nancy Williams, Mary Waxman, Christopher Wary, Stacy Bradfield, John Lang, Molly Braley, Eric Doss, Brooke Morin, Michelle Hamilton, Sandra Hayes, Mark Miley, and Owen Rogers. Welcome, you guys. You know, in addition to the listeners that are part of the Facebook group, the guests of the show are also invited to be part of the group in the hopes that you can continue the conversation with them. So if you have questions that are the result of an episode, you can reach out to the guest and ask questions right in the Facebook group. And we've got a lot of great guests in the group already, like Jody McKee, Josh Volk of Compact Farms, Rick Sherman of Schoolyard Gardens, Jen McGinnis of Friday. Zenny, just to name a few. There's a lot of guests that are members in the Facebook group, and I know that they're happy to interact. In fact, Megan Kane wrote an entire blog post in response to a listener question. So the guests are very responsive, and that's exactly what I had hoped for. Well, let's get started with the Garden News Roundup. These are a handful of the curated posts that I've collected over the past week. They've all been shared in the free Facebook group. So if you hear something and you want to read the full article, no need to take notes. Just head on over to the Facebook group. You'll find everything you need there. I always start with a guest update and the folks over at the Bee's Knees shared a great post in Facebook about the upcoming Dandelion Honey Pastry Chef Challenge. 
They shared in their post that bee expert, Dr. Marla Spivak. She's a MacArthur Fellow and a McKnight Distinguished Professor in Entomology at the University of Minnesota Bee Lab. She's an international leader in bee health research, and she's done amazing things for bees and beekeepers. And she's going to be part of this evening coming up on April 26th. It's the Dandelion Honey Pastry Chef Challenge. And if I'm feeling up to it, I just might pop over and check it out myself. It sounds super fun. And then former guest Lori Neverman of Common Sense Homesteading recently shared her rhubarbade and strawberry rhubarbade drink mixes. So this is a play on the word lemonade. Instead, it's rhubarbade. So she does one that's made with rhubarb just by itself, and then another drink that's made with strawberry and rhubarb. Now, I had never heard of making drinks with rhubarb before, but it's a real thing. In fact, I could tell from the comments on this post that people have been trying this for a while. Rhubarb offers true health benefits. In fact, I was just at Great Harvest Bakery and I bought this rhubarb crumble that they had made and I'm giving it to my mom for her birthday. Just a sweet little treat I can add in her gift bag. Anyway, lots of great tips in this post, as well as in the comments. Don't forget to read the comments associated with this blog post. I thought they were all great. In Sustainability is a post that was shared in The Guardian, and the headline says, Home cooks have an enormous potential to beat food waste, and this includes produce. So the point of this article is how to learn and appreciate leftovers. And from a historical standpoint, some of Britain's most iconic dishes were conceived from what was left behind, from leftovers in the kitchen. It's a great little article. In Continuing Ed this week, House Beautiful shared nine tips for growing the perfect peonies. This was a nice, comprehensive article. If you're growing peonies and need a quick overview, this would be a great article for you. In the how-to DIY segment, there were a lot of articles that made this segment. I had to really cull through a lot of them. Spring is all about how-to, it seems. The first one was featured on Pop Sugar. It shares seven ingenious ways to update your backyard for spring. It has ideas like painting your patio, incorporating a privacy trellis. The one I loved the most was installing AstroTurf on your deck. You've got to see that picture. That's pretty cool. Then Southern Living shared some before and after porch makeovers. These were all really great as well. And then Homify shared some patio ideas for low budgets. In the plant spotlight this week, My Domain shared an article called This Season's Trendiest Flowers Are Also Edible. And it walks through all of the spring flowering blooms that are edible and a great way to dress up a salad. Love this one. In the news this week, NPR shared a story called How to Make Farmers Love Cover Crops, Pay Them. This was featured on March 16th. I think it's very thought-provoking. So on a large scale, cover crops can also be helpful in terms of reducing runoff and restoring the land. But on a smaller scale, our gardens can benefit from cover cropping as well. And I talk about that in a previous episode with Sarah Griffin Bubakar of Peaceful Valley Grow Organic. So check that out if you're interested. In the Dream Guest segment, Mighty Axe Hops shared on Facebook 
that they had just spent a weekend at the Minnesota Hops Growers Association workshop, and they were especially fond of the wisdom of Stan Hieronymus. They said Stan is the hop knowledge champion, and he's the author of All You Need to Know About Hops. So Stan made my dream guest segment this week. I'd love to chat with Stan about growing hops. If Eric Sandrud says he's the champion, then he really must be the real deal. So that would be a great conversation to have. In Science This Week, Aramco World shared an interesting article about walnuts and first forest farms. There's a lot of history and sociology woven into this piece. And I love any time we have an intersection with gardening and history. That's always fascinating to me. For the shopping segment this week, I'm recommending a book. I think you'll love the book called Welcome to the Farm, How to Wisdom from the Elliott Homestead. The Elliott Homestead has a great blog, and this book is a gem. It's a great starting point to create a food forest in your own backyard. So if you're looking for a new book to read, Welcome to the Farm would definitely be top of my list. And then finally, in the inspiration segment, RodalesOrganicLife.com shared an article called How Americans Garden 260 Years Ago. So this is an article that features Colonial Williamsburg, and it shows us that when it comes to gardening techniques, not much has changed. It's a fun read, and I thought you'd find it very inspirational especially as you're planning your 2017 garden. Well, that's it for the Garden News Roundup this week. These are just a handful of the curated posts that I've collected, and they've been shared in the free Facebook group. So if you heard something and you want to see the full article or go to the source, you can just head over to the group. All the links are in the Facebook group, and it's free. So go check it out. Well, in today's show... I'm sharing my conversation about organic potting soil with Mark Hyland of Organic Mechanics. Are you an organic gardener? Do you use organic potting soil? Back in 2006, the idea of organic potting soil would have been an emerging area in the world of horticulture, but it was a question and a concept that Mark Hyland had been thinking about for a while. At that time, the market for U.S. specialty soils was $390 million, and in 2010, the entire U.S. garden market, including plants, soils, supplies, and tools, was worth about $100 billion. Now, Scott's miracle Grow was and still is the category leader, but there wasn't an organic alternative available on any sort of scale back in 2006 back when Mark Hyland had the idea for organic mechanics. So today I'm thrilled to share my chat with entrepreneur Mark Hyland, who was an early innovator in developing environmentally sustainable potting soil. Well, hi, Mark. Welcome to Still Growing. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, it's a pleasure. Tell us a little bit about yourself. How do you end up being uh, in charge of a company like Organic Mechanics. What's your personal story? Yeah, so I, I uh, started college thinking I was going to be a hot class blower, like Dale Chihuly type class blower. Um, oh. So I was, I was going to art school for my sophomore year and then actually made the switch to horticulture. Uh, 
and I just I stayed in Florida, and I had the scholarship to stay in Florida. So I found environmental horticulture at the University of Florida, and I thought, oh my gosh, that sounds so cool! You get to work with plants. And I've always <laughs> had a passion for the environment. I thought environmental horticulture that sounds amazing. So I went and um, took, you know, crammed uh, three years of school into two years, but just loved every minute of. Uh, being in horticulture and learning about plants and how plants grow. And it was just fascinating, the whole uh, plant world. And, you know, from there, I did an internship at Callaway Gardens. because I thought, well, maybe someday I did want to go back and get my master's. Um, and I had my sights set in the Longwood graduate program, which is at the University of Delaware. Okay. From all my professors at the time, they were like, uh, you know, you should go get some experience. We've heard that the students that go out and get experience and then apply have better pole position. It's a very competitive program. They get around 200 applications a year, and there's only five slots. Oh, my. So I, um, after my internship at Callaway, then I moved out to the West Coast. I lived outside of Oregon and Portland, Oregon, for a little while and worked on a certified organic farm. I started a design-build landscape company. I worked for an organic nursery called One Green World, Amazing Plants. Oh, Lots wow. of unusual edibles, that uh, kind of thing. So it was really fun out there, and I had a lot of great experience. But I did come back to the East Coast to go to grad school in the Longwood Graduate Program at the University of Delaware. I applied and got in, um, started that program in, in 2002, graduated in 2004. I did my thesis research on the effects of compost on container media. But I knew when I was at the University of Florida that I was going to start my own company, and I didn't know what type. Was I going to start a farm? Was I? I mean, I started a design-build landscape firm while in Oregon, but that was for someone else. You know, it wasn't mine, for example. And you know, a potting soil company was always on the short list. Maybe I'll do that. I don't know. Hmm. And when I was out in Oregon, I used to spend my free time, quote-unquote, I would drive down to... Um, Corvallis, the University of Oregon, and, and Oregon State. You know, I'd go into the basement of the horticulture library and read up on the latest, greatest research going on with with container media, potting soil, and you know that helped continue to shape and guide what I was going to do. But honestly, once I graduated from the Longwood program, I just decided, look, this is this is kind of a now or never moment. I'm either going to do this or I'm not. You know, and that was in right around 2005, and, you know, Sustainability in Green was making it to the front page of Time Magazine, another, you know, the nation was kind of like, we were starting to ride that sustainability wave, and, you know, LEED was getting more and more popular, buildings and this and that, so I just, I took the plunge and decided, okay, I'm going to go ahead and start this organic potting soil company. There's still not an extremely earth-friendly option for gardeners you know, back in the early 2000s. So I said, all right, our company's going to be that option. You know, there, there, were, there were a couple, but, um, you know, our approach is, is so much more, you know, dedicated to environmental sustainability. We always say one of our core values is environmental sustainability. And so looking at decisions that we make, you know, how is that going to make us more sustainable, more green, because um, it transfers right down the lane that gardeners, vote with their dollars, and if they're choosing sustainable green products, that makes the whole industry, um, you know, a little bit more earth-friendly. 
Well, and I, I've listened to a lot of interviews that you've given, and you talk about the fact that when you started trying to spread the word about your company, you weren't standing up saying, here, buy this product. You were talking to people about the importance of gardening organically. That's, that's it. You, you hit the nail on the head. You know, when, when I started in the Longwood program, at first I thought I wanted to be the director of education at a public garden because I wanted to help educate people about how easy it is to be a successful organic gardener and you don't necessarily need all the stuff um, to grow a healthy plant. You know, that nature, by and large, takes care of most things um, if you just leave it alone and let nature take its course. And, you know, as I got into it, I realized, oh, so the directors of Botanic Gardens, they kind of set policy and they hire other people. They're not necessarily the, the content expert. And so I, I kind of did build my career around becoming a content expert in organic gardening. And, yeah, that's, that's exactly it. Whenever I'm giving talks, I really like to just talk about Hey, we're going to talk about soil today and what makes for good, healthy soil. Or we're going to talk about potting soil today and all the different types of ingredients that go into potting soil and why they're in there. But I feel like, an, you know, an educated person um, can then, you know, everyone can make their own decision on, on what they feel is right or important. And for some people, it's going with the earth-friendly product. You know, some people, uh, you know, again, now want to go with a, a vegetarian or a vegan product if that's their thing. Uh, some people don't even realize, like, Oh my gosh, there's there's animal products in that. I didn't even know. You know, it's a, so education is a very powerful tool. So, yeah, I, I'm all about talking about aspects of gardening, uh, not necessarily pushing products because everyone can make their own decisions on that. And if they, you know, are intrigued by what I was talking about, well, then maybe they are going to go to look uh, for organic mechanics products. But by and large, it's like if if you can't find organic mechanics, I want you to go out and buy the best organic. Uh, products for your garden that you can, you know, really high quality compost, uh, good organic fertilizers, you know, those type of things. Well, as you were saying that, I think two things came to my mind. The first is, you know, that saying ignorance is bliss. I find a lot of times with friends that I meet in the gardening world, ignorance usually means that we're starting out non-organically. We're starting out using chemicals because we just don't know better. So education yeah. is important. But also for you, I think the strategy not only, you know, is the core of your value structure for your company, but it really is foundational to building your customer base because education is a big part of getting people to buy your product. They've got to know why it's important to be organic before they'll even consider buying your product, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I was not an organic gardener at all until I, you know, started learning from other people and seeing the differences between organic and conventional and doing my own research to find out more. And, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of claims out there about, you know, what it means to be organic and why it's different, why it's better. You know, for me, it comes down to some really uh, simple things that, you know, being organic in the garden is more earth-friendly. It's putting less pressure on our resources. And it's building the soil ecosystem. It's all about building healthy soil. Because um, if we have 
good, healthy soil where the microbes that live in the soil are doing their thing. They're going to provide nutrients. They're going to filter out pollutants, um, which means that the water that's coursing through those soils is clean uh, and good, you know, drinkable water. We're not polluting things uh, by applying a bunch of pesticides or over-applying fertilizer, uh, you know, because all that stuff is water-soluble and all water goes to the rivers. And, you know, so that you're talking about marine health and, and that kind of thing, too. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, I feel like it is, there are a lot of benefits to organic gardening. And, you know, and one of the biggest ones from a gardener's perspective is that in the long run, organic gardening is less work. And no one likes to do work in the garden. You know, being in the garden should be fun. You should be out there playing. You should be having having a good time. It shouldn't be drudgery. And and I know we've all pulled weeds in the heat where you're sweating and the humidity's up. But you know, there's maintenance. Sure, there's always maintenance in the garden. But you know, by and large, organic gardening it requires less work. It requires less inputs, which means less money. Uh, so and, and there's so much more joy. I mean, everybody who sees a bird or a butterfly in the garden, it doesn't matter if your garden's organic or conventional. You're going to smile. You're going to be happy about it. But if your garden is organic, you don't have to be concerned about like, oh, well, I just sprayed pesticides over there and there's insects on that. And then the bird came, grabbed the insect. It probably got sprayed with pesticide. Then she's going to feed that insect to her baby bird. And then, you know, so, you know, or you can be like, if you don't spray at all, then you're just growing food for all the creatures of the world that, you know, there's um, there's so many benefits to being an organic gardener, um, and it really there's selfish ones, and then there's the greater worldview of you know keeping an organic safe space for bees, for insects, for butterflies, for caterpillars, for flies, for you know, beetles, for all the wonderful things that live in our gardens. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about this elite experience you had going through Longwood. Was organic a big focus of your training there? It wasn't. Really, the Longwood graduate program trains leaders in public horticulture. So I like to call it, it's like an MBA for nonprofits. So that program teaches you how to run a nonprofit. We were introduced to a lot of different gardens. We're very blessed here in the Delaware Valley in southeast Pennsylvania, but there's a lot of public gardens in the area. So um, that program is, is very much a training program. And so you're, you're, the degree, you're getting this MBA, essentially, for nonprofit. So I almost considered myself getting a, a, a dual major. I, I did it without going after the formal title, because I took a lot, a lot of classes on plant pathology and um, soils and a, a lot of other things that that aspect, you know, was my kind of exposure to the organic world. That and just the research that I did at Longwood, producing their compost, elevating their composting system to produce some really high quality compost. Uh, so I got, I did, but by my own education and my own initiatives, uh, the program itself was really uh, more about creating leaders that understand the ins and outs of, of public horticulture, public gardens. Okay. So it's kind of a leadership training program in a sense. Yep. You got it. Hmm. Now, every entrepreneur often has a story of the resistance that they face, the naysayers that they encountered as they were starting their business. And I'm trying to imagine the reaction of your family and friends when you say, 
I'm going to sell potting soil. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, um, you know, they, I guess my family and friends, they know me really well. So they all believed in me from the beginning. So, you know, I, I, uh, I appreciate all my family and friends very much. But, uh, yeah, then you go to um, these small business advisors, you know, that uh, every, every county, every state has some kind of a program. Like, oh, this is a small business advisory council. And yeah, you go to them, you tell them what you're going to do. And they're like, you're going to sell dirt. And you think you're going to make money at it. <laughs> you know, they, they were just blown away that I, I'm like, yeah, no, seriously. No, I, you know, I've done the research and yeah, I, you know, people buy potting soil. What do you want me to say? And <laughs> there's not a really solid organic option that people can get everywhere. You know, there's, there was a few like, you know, local regional companies and, and, um, you know, we're, we're one of those companies now, you know, um, you know, based out of Philadelphia region, but, um, yeah, so that, that definitely met some resistance there, but then I, I won them over in the end and I would explain everything in detail and they're like, Oh, okay. All right. Well, we can see how this might work. Um, but yeah. And then the same thing, uh, when we finally did get going, uh, but we were, you know, one product, one size to start with, but I thought that garden centers would immediately be like, oh my gosh, this is fantastic. Yes, let's bring this in. We're going to sell it. And I thought, you know, people would just buy it in droves because, you know, why Why wouldn't you try an organic potting soil if you're, you know, out there gardening and had a lot of good ingredients in it so that you, you didn't have to go buy all these different things and mix them together yourself. But, uh, you know, rapidly found out that, um, you know, in, in my mind, it would be an easy sell to garden centers. But reality was that selling to garden centers is really a tough market. Um, it is not easy to break into um, these garden centers. And, you know, you can understand some of the reasons, of course, that um, as uh, they have, you know, whether they're the first, second, or third generation garden center owners, a lot of these garden centers are, uh, you know, a family-run business, and you know, it might be, you know, second or third generation. Um, they've seen changes in the industry. They've seen companies come and go. And for there was a time where a lot of the bigger companies just kind of looked at us and they're like, well, yeah, uh, it looks great, but I don't want to bring our product that then is not going to be available in like two years. Um, but then, you know, years go on, years go on. And so some customers it's taken, you know, two to six years to get them on board. But Customers of ours learn pretty quick. Once they start stocking our products, they sell well. Um, you know that there's no risk really in buying our products if you're a garden center. Um, well, one thing I I didn't anticipate in the very beginning was that we, like I said, we had one product, one size, and um, myself, uh, our web designer, the guy, and um, the VP at the time, my, my best friend uh, Jim the three of us designed this bag. And so it was our first product and it was a white bag with green lettering. And I wanted it to be kind of classic, like that uh, classic China look with just like ivory, like the white and blue kind of ivory and blue classic look. We we're doing it with like white and green. So we thought it would look great. And we start showing it to the garden center owners and they're like, Oh, that's not a very good looking bag. <laughs> and you know, we, we were like, Oh Yeah. Who, we, I know better. I, I know who our primary target audience is, even though both men and women garden. The primary audience, uh, you know, in 
the early 2000s, it was women. Women were the most gardeners. They do the most amount of gardening and garden shopping. So, so we didn't make that same mistake twice when we redesigned the bags. And we, we went around the second go. We had 30 women on the focus group to design the bags. And that's the current design that we have today. And most women look at the bag and they're like, I love it. I love this art deco artwork on here. It's very classy. Um, and you show it to a lot of men, you know, I'm not trying to generalize, but you show it to a lot of men, they're like, oh, I don't like it. It's not colorful enough. And, you know, it's just like palm to forehead. You know, okay. But you know what? It does look really nice when you, you just put it next to, um, you know, plants. So, yeah, uh, you know, in the end, it's all about what's inside the bag. It doesn't really matter what the packaging looks like. You know, in the end, we wanted to make sure we were putting a quality product in the bags. But, you know, that was one of the, um, uh, you know, resistance things that we met when we were first starting out, that people didn't like the packaging. They were resistant to bring it in because they thought, oh, I don't know if this company's going to be around. Um, but, you know, our biggest asset was the stuff in the bag. And so I'd give it, I'd just give it away. I'd be like, yeah, try a bag. Hmm. Put a plant in our soil and then put a plant in whatever soil you sit on that you like and see what happens. And that convinced a lot of people to bring our products in because you know, a lot of the time our products in, because, um, you know, it just grew bigger plants compared to other soils. And that's easy for gardeners to use because it already had the worm casting mixed in and compost mixed in. There's a lot of people might buy just an average bag of potting soil and then mix in some worm castings or compost themselves, um, which is um, you know, it's a great thing to do. I absolutely know that gardeners are tinkerers. They love to play around with things. They love to try new things. And, oh, I'm going to buy this, and then I'm going to mix it with that for this special plant that I bought. You know, I love that aspect of gardeners. I love talking to people about their plants and what they do. And, um, you know, that's, that's you know, the people that are, that are gardening, you know, they're just people are doing all kinds of fascinating things in the garden world. So I love talking about plants. Um, you know, but at the same time, we also want to make it easy for people to just grab a bag and go, especially the beginners are like, I don't know what I need to be mixing into this stuff. Just, you know, mix it for me and, you know, let me you know, turn me loose with some plants. So, yeah, that was, you know, I'm sure I have a very long answer to your question. Now, let me ask you this. <laughs> are people who buy your product, do they become kind of fanatical about it? Like that's the only potting soil they will use and then they rave about it? Well, I know that there is a little bit of that that happens, um, and you know, which is great. I mean, you know, if you fall in love with something, well, that's, you know, you're going to be passionate about it. You know, I, uh, you know, that goes the same for anybody or anything. You know, you have a favorite sweatshirt, you're going to wear that sweatshirt all the time. A pair of jeans, you're going to, you know, you got a favorite smoothie that you like. Hey, you're going to stock it in your fridge, and you know, yogurt, same thing. You know, so that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, by and large, uh, you know. When you talk about organic mechanics, we are, the product is a very earth-friendly product. So people who are into, you know, being an earth-friendly gardener or, you know, conscious person with their buying habits, they are going to be kind of drawn to the earth-friendly side of organic mechanics. Um, you know, we did it just because we wanted to do it. And then, you know, yes, of course, it does align with other people's values. Which, I mean, we just did it to give people an option, a earth-friendly option. Like, look, you don't have to buy it. It is out there that if you want your friendly stuff, here it is. You know, you can buy it from us. And, you know, we 
like to get it out there for as reasonable a price as we, we can. You know, high quality ingredients are expensive, but they're totally worth it. You know, anything will get you from A to B, but um, higher quality materials get you a higher quality garden. And so in, in my case, you know, especially growing your own food, um, you know, not only do you want it to be organic so that, you know, you're not eating a bunch of chemicals, um, you know, it also is going to be, can be, you know, bigger yields and tastier fruit, that kind of thing as well. So I'm imagining what pressure you might have felt back in 2005 as you're finishing up your degree and you are figuring that you're going to take a run at this market because you've seen a need, a niche that's not being filled at all and it's organic soil. Did you feel an intense amount of pressure to get going to be first in the market before other people started coming in? Yeah, absolutely. Because we we knew that um, you know those of us who were getting the company off the ground, we, we knew that it was only a matter of time. Because um, you could you could see the writing on the wall if you were looking, and the companies that had been around for a while were were starting to grow, um, and yeah, there weren't a whole lot of small ones like Organic Mechanic at the time. Since then, uh, you know, there was a point. About three, two, three years ago, probably three years ago, at the trade shows that we go to, there was like a dozen new soil companies in the aisles. Oh, wow. And we were just like, we were, we were like, oh my God. Because people saw the success of companies like Organic Mechanic and others. And they're like, all right, well, we can do that. And, you know, I uh, have said, you know, previously that, you know, hey, Anybody who wants to make a go of a small business, you know, more power to them because it is not easy to start a small business of any kind. Doesn't matter if you're talking about a potting soil company, a landscape company, a restaurant, a catering business, uh, you know, any kind of specialty business, small business, you know, my hat's off to you if you want to go after it. It is not easy. Um, you know, there's a lot, you lose a lot of sleep over stuff. You get stressed out. There's just, there's no easy way to do it. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of pressure to be first market, to get there, to establish, um, to grow as fast as we could. But you know, healthy, strong growth on on two feet, not trying to reach for the moon, not trying to overreach and, mm. and uh, re- extend ourselves too far. Um, so we stayed very uh, local, um, you know, to start with, and you know, we've grown now, um, you know, quite a bit over the past you know eleven years. But um, yeah, there was there was definitely a, an intense pressure to to get to market, and also the intense pressure to do good by the family and friends that stood with me to put money into starting the company. Because I I don't have any money, you know. I don't. <laughs> I'm, I'm not. I just I don't. I don't have any family money. I don't have any. So I but I did it by recruiting a lot of family and friends and said, "Hey, we're all going to be part owners of this company." So. Uh, the accountant loves me because we, we have the largest stack every year when it comes to tax time because of how many members there are with our company. But, <laughs> you know, that is how we started. And uh, I will continue to be loyal to those uh, friends, uh, you know, all the way through. So, um, yeah, there's kind of pressure on all sides, but, you know, pressure put on myself, by myself, of course, to do well. Um, but also just company business pressure like, yep, better establish quick and make a name for yourself because 
you know, there's going to be other companies that come along after us. And there were. But, you know, like I said, that was like three years ago. Going to the garden, going to the um, garden shows this year, um, most of them have already disappeared. There's oh, wow. still, some of the newer ones are still around. But, you know, I can I can count six or seven that disappeared in the last year. Or, uh, and then even more that kind of um, retreated. So, like, they were trying to really expand their distribution uh, footprint, but then rapidly realized, oh, yeah, we can't do that. And then they had to shrink back down. So, um, and kind of for the same reasons, they had the same resistance that I had when we were starting, that uh, there is resistance to change, and, and people don't just immediately adopt new things. Um, you know, I, I'm not a marketing guy. I know there's terms for all that. You know, you have your early adopters, which those are the people that are willing to try anything new the first time it comes out, um, you know, and, and those types of people certainly. Um, and that's why there was the rush to get established because you get all those people on board and they start using their product, your product. They love your product. Um, and it's, uh, you know, they aren't necessarily going to switch to somebody else's brand, but, um, you know, they generally will still try something else because you never know, you know, you don't get to, um, discover new things without trying new things. And, um, but, uh, yeah, so there was, there was competition, but, um, it's amazing how quickly some of them, the smaller ones just disappeared already. Well, and as you're talking, I, I was thinking about this old mentor that I had when I worked in business for a while. And she said, don't forget that business is all about relationships. So spend time investing in people, you know, as you're building your career and you created a relationship with Whole Foods, and that was a massive turning point for your company. Yeah, they um, they've been really good to us over the years. They're they're you know one of our biggest customers. Um, it was um, you know I always knew that they could sell a lot of potting soil. Um, you know I just you know I was I've been in this world, you know, passionate about organics and saw all these products. I was like, you know, they could sell potting soil, like out front of the store. Absolutely. They could do that. So, uh, yeah, I went after them early on, like in, in 2007, it was kind of random chance that I was in a whole foods and there was a, you know, they have a community board up and one of the pages on the community board said, do you have a product you'd like to sell to whole foods? Guess what? We're having a meeting. Call this number. So wow. Called the called the number and got a appointment slot. Went in and pitched my, you know, one product, one size, and Whole Foods said, "Okay, we'll give it a shot. You can have like these three stores, and we'll see how it does." And it did well. And you know, time year after year, they let it grow. Okay, well, now you can have all the Pennsylvania stores. We'll see how you do. Okay, now we'll give you these three states. We'll see how you do. It just grew and grew, um, and yeah. We, we visited every store, you know, treated those stores just like their own independent garden center. Um, and a lot of those stores will go through just as much product as a garden center every year. Um, you know, people know that it's, it's a convenient thing. They can just pick up some potting soil while they're doing their grocery shopping. But yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with you that, you know, making connections with people is the best way to move any business forward. With any business, you're only as good as your people that are there with you. You know, that's the best 
the biggest strength of any organization is the people that work there. Um, you know, they're, they're a collective body of knowledge, how they work together as a team, you know, that, that kind of thing. So, yeah, we've continued to build relationships. You know, every customer is an important customer. Um, you know, they're all important to us. doesn't matter if they're Whole Foods or, you know, a, a small farm that comes and buys one uh, pickup truck worth of soil every year. You know, every customer is important. And, you know, because everybody's got a story. Everybody has a business. Everybody has a life, family, and they're all working to better themselves. And so, you know, we're all in this together because, um, you know, using these products instead of more conventional ones, you know, we're, you know, making the world a bit more earth-friendly bag by bag. Well, for folks who are in the gardening space and they have a new product that they want to sell, you would probably advocate getting involved in the trade show circuit, going to trade shows and talking to people, whether they're owners of nurseries or distributors of some kind. That was invaluable to you. How did you how did you handle that? Because that's a grind, isn't it? Going to trade shows and all the speaking and all the standing and the barrage yeah. of people. It is. It is. Uh, basically, in the beginning, I went and spoke at every venue I possibly could <laughs> to educate people about the benefits of healthy soil. And then by default, you know, I get introduced as Mark Hyland, president of Organic Mechanics and you know, if I was lucky, somebody at the end would be like, well, what about your products? Where can we get them? And I'd be like, oh, thank you for asking. Yes, because I'm not, because, uh, you know, like you said earlier, I, I'm not a blatant salesperson. I, you know, that's not the point of the lectures, the talks, the workshops. You know, that was to teach people about the benefits of organic gardening. And if they want to learn about our products, well, that's great. You know? um, but yeah, in the beginning, I would, uh, the first few years, I was clocking between 60 and 90 talks a year. Yeah, that's a lot. about organic gardening, and that's a lot. That definitely takes a toll on you. I was a um, uh, in the very beginning, I was a single uh, person, even though I was dating my now wife. Um, but I was single at the time, so I could do a lot of traveling. We didn't have kids yet, so that made it really easy. Um, so, uh, yep, lots of talks to garden clubs and at garden centers and. Um, you know, public gardens, you know, I, I definitely had the benefit of being in the Longwood program where I met a lot of people in the region and they knew, I knew, I knew how to make great compost and I gave great PowerPoint lectures. And so I got booked for a lot of speaking gigs where it was just even how to make compost, how to make worm castings, uh, you know, and, and, um, and that was a lot of fun. And, and certainly it is a valuable thing when you're trying to launch a new product to get in front of as many people as possible to just increase the knowledge and awareness that your new product exists. Because you may have the greatest thing since sliced bread, but if people don't know about it, then they can't buy it. Right? So getting in front of as many people as possible, how, however that, whatever that means to, you know, the entrepreneur, um, it's invaluable. And, and, uh, yeah, we, we definitely, the trade show circuit, because I was going to events, uh, when I was in the Longwood program, you know, there's 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 a million events in here in the Delaware Valley, but I think there's probably a lot of events for everybody, no matter where you are. If you're in Madison, Wisconsin, or if you're in, um, you know, if you're in um, Brooklyn, New York, or if you're in San Francisco, or, or or you're in Montgomery, Alabama, it doesn't matter where you are. There's definitely some local horticultural organizations near you that have classes and events, and workshops, and so um, 
there's always ways to partner that don't necessarily cost a lot of money where you can get yourself and your product in front of other people, um, you know, a lot of those things. But trade shows were uh, definitely where it's at for us. We uh, meet the majority of our customers at these highly targeted trade shows. Um, and there's a million trade shows you can go to. You know, for us, the east on the East Coast, you know, there's this show called Mance, the, the Mid-Atlantic uh, Nursery and Allied Trade Show, which happens in January each year. That's a really big one for us. And then um, there's another very targeted show called the IGC Show for Independent Garden Center Show. And that's in Chicago every year in August. And those are great because you see a lot of our, our customers, the garden centers, right? So there's a lot of trade shows that you can work, but if it's not your target market, well, you're going to see a lot of people that just pass by, and then that's, that's pretty expensive um, to just capture you know, a small percentage of the audience. But just so many trade shows. There's like the, there's the Atlanta's gift show. New York has a, NYC has a gift show. And, um, there's so many trade shows. You just really have to pick and choose and uh, focus in on who you think is going to have the most amount of your core demographic there. Uh, and then that doesn't even count the consumer events and the consumer shows. And I hate that word consumer. I really like the word gardener more because consumer is just makes me think people are consuming things all the time. And that I, I hate being referenced to as a consumer, but so anyway, but yeah, the events that gardeners are going to, like we have this awesome radio station in Philadelphia called WXPN. Um, you ever hear the world cafe on, on NPR yeah. that, that, uh, that lives in Philly that David died. You know, that's, it's a Philly radio show. So they have a big music festival every year. And, uh, you know, we, we did that event for about four years and, you know, we had a table and it was like the green pavilion area. And so a lot of the green companies were there together and that was great. And we talked to thousands of people in those four years that we did it. But in year four, it like it, the numbers slowly started to trickle down. And, uh, by year four, I was like, people are just not coming over to this green tent anymore. And those that did, half of them said, yeah, we saw you here last couple of years. Yeah, awesome. Keep up the good work. And then I was like, okay, that's it. We, you know, we, we went to this show. We hit it hard. We educated a lot of people, and a lot of people learned about us. But now let's, let's move on. Let's go do something else for a few years, and then maybe we'll be back to the, you know, this music event. So you, you really have to pick and choose. And, and just because something was working to start with, you can't be too stuck in the rut to think that you can't get outside and do something else because odds are, you know, yeah, maybe there's going to be something else that helps you even more and you don't know until you try. Hmm. You know, one of the things that as you were talking, I was thinking about all the ingredients that you have to source and be knowledgeable about in order to sell your product. Is there any ingredient in particular that maybe – since 2006, you have a different perspective that, is, that has evolved in the last decade that, you know, maybe you were high on back in 2006, and now with the benefit of additional information or alternative resources that you've sourced, you feel a little differently about it. Is there anything in your ingredient, um, you know, list, in your pantry of things that you're using to make all of your organic soils that you maybe view a little differently now? Well, you know, we still use all the same ingredients that we used when we started, uh, but we have changed suppliers over the years. 
Uh, you know, we're always looking to do things to make our products better, to perform better for gardeners. So when we, we had the opportunity to go with a, a higher quality compost, we did it. When we had the opportunity to go for a higher quality pine bark, um, we did it. Um, you know, when, when we had the quality, chance to go for a higher quality coconut fiber, we, we did it. Uh, you know, those kinds of things. Um, so I would say for, for me, it hasn't really changed, although I've become more educated on all these different things. Um, you know, pine bark is a great example. Um, cause eight, composted pine bark is one thing that's used ubiquitously on the East Coast for, and through the Midwest really for, um, growing nursery stock. So if you buy a plant, it doesn't matter if it's a tiny, uh, you know, four inch annual all the way on up to a, you know, 10 gallon woody tree. If you, if you bought it on the East coast, it was grown on the East coast. There's a good chance that that potting soil has bark in the mix, right? It's a commodity item that everyone uses. There's a lot of nurseries that grow uh, woody plants and just straight pine bark. Um, so this is an item that's used ubiquitously throughout the East Coast. It's in high demand. It's a commodity item. And I've learned over the years that there's a lot of different uh, grades of suppliers of this item. Um, because it is a commodity item and it's in high demand, there are times where there are shortages. There are times when you really have to hustle to secure products. Um, and over the years, there's been other things that have happened where uh, you know, pine bark is a form of biomass, and some of the state governments, and there was a time when uh, they were essentially giving, you know, subsidies to groups that were converting power plants over to burn biomass. And so the horticulture industry as a whole has the potential to lose one of the, it's the source, of one of the, you know, uh, the greatest amount of material that's needed for potting soil, pine bark, and we would be losing that to the power industry if we're not careful, if our industry organizations don't lobby for us correctly, like, hey, that's a resource that we need for mulch, we need it for soils, we need it for all these things. And if the power industry ended up using all of the pine bark that was available, the horticulture industry would be hurting big time because we'd have to use more expensive ingredients which would mean the plants would get more expensive, which would mean the gardeners are paying more for their plants. And, you know, that means that people can buy less plants because there's only so much money that you have every year to spend on your gardening activities. So, um, you know, it's a ripple-down effect that I didn't realize was so strong until we got pretty far into it and I realized, wow, this is really just a commodity item and we need to make sure we're buying from high-quality suppliers and, uh, you know, try to find suppliers that don't have the pressure uh, to sell to biomass companies. And depending on what state you're buying your products from, some states have more pressure than others. So, uh, you know, I still love all the ingredients that we've chosen, and some of them have just grown on me even more with time. But, you know, we chose ingredients that are uh, high quality, that have a lot of uh, bio- beneficial biology, to them because that's one of the big things about organic mechanics is we're biology based organic so you want the best biology you can get in your soil um, and uh, yeah and the sustainability of some of the other ingredients you know the fact that we use rice hulls instead of perlite and the fact that we are peat free 
and we use compost and coconut fiber instead of peat. So still like all the ingredients that we have, but we definitely have uh, had an education on some of them. Hmm. Let's do a little primer for folks about these ingredients and help them understand maybe the beneficial aspects of them. Let's start with pine bark. What is so great about pine bark? So uh, you take the bark off the tree, you put it in giant piles, it composts essentially. It's mainly like aging it in giant piles, but the material breaks down, uh, reduces in particle size, so you get pine fines, they call it, or like pine soil conditioner kind of stuff. Not the pine bark nuggets that you might see at a landscape mulch places. These are the um, aged and fine, very dark in color. Um, so this material uh, is a fantastic medium for plant roots to grow through. Um, aged composted pine bark has been shown to have a lot of beneficial uh, fungi present. Um uh, that work was done at Ohio State University by uh, Dr. Harry Hoytink in his labs. So he's uh, now, um, you know, he's, he's retired from uh, Ohio State, but did a lot of work there in the, uh, in the 80s, 90s on composted pine bark and how beneficial it is for plant roots. So it's, it's really just aged bark um, that is really beneficial for plant roots. And it has a low pH, which is nice. The pH of the pine bark helps to balance the pH of the of the compost because you really want your pH of your potting soil to be below neutral, which is seven on the pH scale. So you want your potting soil to be closer to like six point five as far as the pH goes. So the pine bark helps with that, balancing out that acidity. Um, so yeah, it's really it's just a great medium for plant roots to grow in. Uh, slightly acidic, has a lot of beneficial fungi present. And, yeah, that's why we use that. How about coconut choir? Do you say choir? People pronounce it a lot of different ways. Um, you know, we, we call it coconut husk fiber um, to just avoid that issue. Okay. But um, <laughs> choir, core, it really, it also comes down to what side of the pond you're on. By that, I mean in the U.K., they all say choir. choir. Uh, here in the States, a lot of people say core. Uh, but coconut, it's coconut husk fiber. Um, so, you know, if you're not familiar, right, you're talking coconut. Uh, you know, everybody's seen like the coconut in the store, but that doesn't have the shell around the outside, which you'd probably only see if you live in a tropical area or if you've watched an episode of Survivor, watch them opening coconut. <laughs> but you have the outside very fibrous material, um, and then you have the inner coconut. And so you're getting so many different products from one coconut. You get coconut oil, coconut water, coconut meat. Uh, you know, there's coconut shell. So that hard brown shell, it's like the classic bowling ball look that kind of you can buy at the store. Uh, that very hard shell is uh, heated and made into essentially activated charcoal that used for water filtration. Um, the long fibers that are on the outside, that's the stuff that's ground uh, up to use to make welcome mats and hanging basket liners. And the stuff that's left over is what they call the pith. Um, so it's, it's dark brown, fibrous, uh, very fine particle material. And that is the coconut fiber that we get. So they take that material. It's spread out on giant pads um, so that it can be rained on. And so the rain essentially is washing some of the salt 
out of the coconut fiber. Oh, you can imagine that is coconut crazy. trees, right? I mean, it's just giant pads. Is what you can think of it like the size of an Olympic swimming pool, and it's just full of coconut fiber. And the rain is just washing away some of the salt because um, coconut trees like to grow near the ocean, so they oh, accumulate okay. salt in their tissues. Ugh. Salts are not good for plant growth, yep. and so that natural washing process happens for a period of time, and then they um, move it to a different area, essentially the drying area, where after it's dried, it's then compressed into blocks. And so we get pallets of these blocks that are compressed. And essentially, when you add water to the block, it expands. And, you know, they expand about five to one. So we get about a half a cubic foot block. And when we expand it, we get about two and a half cubic feet of the coconut fiber it looks like a giant brownie when it's done puffing up. So, um, and then from that point on, it's ready to just be mixed and used in your media. The, um, the physical properties of coconut fiber are very similar to the physical properties in peat moss in terms of the porosity, the water holding capacity. Now, these are important elements when you're designing a potting soil. Um, but, you know, those are some of the, the things that you're experiencing as a gardener that if, you're, if your potting soil has good moisture holding capacity, well, then you might be able to go longer than 24 hours in between watering. Um, and that also has to do with you know, how big is your plant, that kind of thing. But, but coconut fiber is very similar to peat moss in terms of what it can hold for water and how much pore space it has for air. Plant roots need to breathe, too. Um, so yeah, coconut fiber, it's also, uh, it's, it's just more sustainable because it is the byproduct after a long string of, of, um, products that come out of a coconut. Um, and it's also, um, when it's shipped, right? So it's shipped by boat as opposed to being shipped over the road, you burning diesel. So when it's shipped by boat, it's one of you know, a thousand plus containers on the ship, depending on the size of the ship. Um, so it's very economical shipping by by boat, um, almost like by shipping by rail, uh, which is very economical in terms of fuel efficiencies. Um, so when you compare that against, you know, peat, uh, there's that's why we we chose the coconut fiber because you know it is very earth friendly, um, has a lot of benefit to it, and um, in, in terms of plant benefit and potting soil benefit. Uh, and it's just, you know, yeah, just more friendly compared to um, peat moss. Interesting. So, so we chose coconut fiber. Very interesting. Now, do you know uh, the countries that would be like top exporters in that? Yeah. So um, as you can imagine it grows in tropical areas. Yep. Uh, so we don't have any here in the States, but it's uh, widely grown in India, Sri Lanka, Vietnam, um, even Mexico has some coming along. Um, the source quality does vary a little bit from place to place. Um, but those are the primary uh, producers of coconut fiber. Okay. How about rice hulls? So the rice hull is uh, the shell around the rice seed, right? So, um, you know, you crack it open, it looks like two canoes kind of that surround the rice seed. So those are the hulls. Um, you know, buckwheat hulls are a classic thing that's inside like a travel pillow. 
So these are these are rice hulls. So they're um, grown right domestically right here in the U.S. Um, a lot of people are surprised to learn how much rice is actually grown here in the United States, but quite a bit actually. So the the hulls are essentially uh, part of the harvesting process. They harvest the rice. The hulls are left over. They then parboil the hulls to get rid of any uh, plant pathogens that might be present, to get rid of any weed seeds that might be present. And then they dry them and compress them and um, you know, ship them out to, to growers and customers um, so that it works as a perlite substitute. Perlite's the white stuff in potting soil. Yes. Uh, perlite is a mineral, so it's expanded silica ore. Uh, it's a very energy-intensive process to make that. You have to heat it up to over 1,400 degrees a few times during that production process, kind of tops it like popcorn, and then you have you know, perlite. So you can tell it's perlite in your potting soil if you take a little piece of that white stuff and then try to squish it next to your ear. You'll hear a crunch, a crunching sound if it's perlite. And if you hear no crunch and you, you move your fingers and that thing kind of like pops back up, well, my friends, that is a styrofoam pellet. And yes, there are potting soil companies that put styrofoam pellets in their potting soil uh, because styrofoam pellets are cheaper than perlite. So you do have to watch out for that. But but we use it as a perlite substitute because it's earth-friendly. It's going uh, to break down eventually and, and uh, disappear in the landscape. Whereas perlite just blows around in the garden. You can see that white stuff forever. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's more energy... Uh, you know, efficient to use that, and just it performs really well in potting soil, and you can use less and still get the same amount of uh, drainage of porosity. Um, so that's a win-win as well. Uh, you know, it, it does break down over time, but the trials we looked at in the very beginning, uh, plants grew for uh, you know a couple of years, and we'd slice open the root ball and look. And the rice holes on the outside of the pot were somewhat still there, not not all broken down yet. On the inside of the container, the rice holes were gone, um, but left behind was this beautiful pore space where the bacteria in the soil had eaten away the carbon of the rice hull. And they leave behind these very sticky substances that help to build healthy soil. So in that process, the hull was gone, but the pore space remained. So they're just really fantastic for, for potting soils. So the, the rice hulls, you can use them in soil, um, but they're, they're versatile as well that um, you can use them for weed control. And there's more and more big nurseries that are doing this, which is fantastic because it's, it's um, reducing the amount of herbicide that they have to spray in the nursery, which is a win-win on all counts. So if you see a plant that has a bunch of like yellow looking grass seed on top of the pot. Those are rice hulls. And that nursery is growing those plants and not using as much herbicide. So if there's um, a nursery that doesn't have the rice hulls versus one that does, you know, you're voting with your dollars to choose the nursery with the rice hulls that's using less herbicide, which is making for, you know, cleaner waterways and a lot of other benefits. So, uh, so look for that at your local garden center. And they're, they're fantastic for, for cutting out weeds. you got to have it about an inch or more thick for weed control in a pot. Uh, but 
when the USDA was doing that research to determine will this work for weed control, and they found out it would, they, they did this research in a greenhouse because it's controlled conditions, and they discovered, huh, these plants are the only plants in the greenhouse that don't have fungus gnats. So they realized it's also very effective at keeping fungus gnats from climbing up and out and, and you know, becoming established in a, in a home, you know, in a, in a bed container. So when you're bringing in plants at the end of summer and they're going to take their winter homes in your house, put a half-inch, three-quarter-inch layer on top of the soil, and that'll keep the fungus gnats from going in and out. You know, they, they feel, rice holes feel nice and fluffy in your hand if you grab a handful of them. Um, you squeeze them and they kind of push back on your hand a little bit, kind of attribute to their, their fluffiness. But if you're a fungus gnat, trying to climb through that stuff, your wings are going to get snapped off in a heartbeat. I mean, there's, it's just very difficult for an insect to get through this dry layer of rice hulls. And if you didn't know, fungus gnats love to lay their eggs at the top part of the soil where they then, the, the baby, the, the larva of the fungus gnat eats your plant roots. Um, so if you have a dry surface layer, it really deters them as well. So it's a one-two punch to deter fungus gnats from getting established in the garden. Oh, that's great information. I love that. And I am going to start incorporating that when I bring my plants in in the fall, because I always put my house plants outside. A lot of them just hang out under the deck away from the sun, but they love the humidity mm-hmm. and the just wonderful Minnesota summer under my deck. They're a little sheltered, but then when I bring them in, I have to deal with the little gnat issues. So I love this idea. You know, I ran into rice hulls at a nursery in town here. I had gone to a, I think it was like a, a holiday uh, container workshop, and they were having us top dress with the rice hulls because they just looked pretty. You know, it was a nice way to kind of top dress. But I love the functionality here, and um, they're not cheap. At least, at least at this particular nursery I was at, they weren't cheap to buy a bag of rice hulls. Are they? Do you find them to be a little bit expensive, or not necessarily? Well, uh, you know, we are we we have it as a retail product. Uh, it comes in an eight quart size or a two cubic foot size, and um, we tried to price it so it would be pretty close to the, the bag of perlite that you'd be buying in its place. Okay. So, um, you know, for anybody who's in our area, they can find ours. It, it's it's pretty competitive next to a bag of perlite. It might be it might be a dollar more, but you know, for the earth friendly aspects of it, um, you know, I would argue that it's worth it. But um, yeah, it should be pretty close. But yeah, I mean, certainly perlite's not cheap either. So in the grand scheme of things, perlite's actually a bit more expensive. Um, for the for the grower, um, but for the gardener, it should be pretty priced pretty similar on the shelf if they're looking for it. Okay, so the the key takeaway here for gardeners that are listening is that they can use rice hulls in place of perlite if they want to. Absolutely, for that and um, for weed control in pots, it looks very nice, as you said. It's a very cool use of it, and um, yeah, for fungus gnat control, yep. Okay, so let's talk about worm castings. What are your thoughts on this? So it's a phenomenal ingredient for potting soils. That's why it goes in every bag that we make. Um, The benefits of worm castings are the the biology is the number one benefit. There's just incredibly diverse beneficial biology in the worm castings. 
And worm castings are a nice way of saying worm poop. So kids love it when I do an event at a school or they come up to us when we're working an event and I show them the stuff. I'm like, this is worm casting. And they look at it and then they want to touch it and they're like, yeah, it's worm poop. And then they either really want to touch it or they, the hand immediately springs back. And I'm like, no, seriously, it's okay. You can touch it. It's not like cow poop or something. These are worms. <laughs> um, so, but generally speaking, all kids love to put their hands in worm poop and then be like, I touched worm poop. You know, it's, it's a kid thing. But, but they, they, plants love worm castings. Um, it is amazing if you do it with, without, um, to prove to yourself how well worm castings enhance plant growth. So, yeah, so we put them in every blend uh, just because they are so phenomenal for increasing plant growth and they just have so many awesome compounds in them. There's auxin, cytokinin, and uh, these are the things that really push plants to grow faster. So you get the biology. There's a lot of other really good stuff on worm castings too. So how about uh, compost? That gets listed as an ingredient in some of your products. What is compost to you? Well, how do you guys define that? So because I did my master's thesis on the subject of compost, um, you know, I am very particular in, in what we call compost. So um, the compost that we buy it is commercially made. So that means that it's hitting the right temperatures to uh, kill off any disease pathogens, you know, plant diseases that are in there, to kill off any weed seeds that are in there. Um, and it goes through a very specific subset of temperatures during the turning process because you've got to turn it frequently when it's hot. And it's very hot in the beginning after you build the piles, and then the temperatures eventually come down after about eight weeks. And usually by 12 weeks, the temperatures have stabilized right around room temperature, uh, ambient temperature kind of thing. Um, with the pile is maybe somewhere between, you know, 80 and 90 degrees, more of like a, uh, you know, ambient temperature in the summertime. And then over a longer period of time, it can cool down even further and, you know, it'll just be sitting at, you know, whatever temperature it is outside. Um, but composting needs to go through a very specific set of, uh, temperatures, um, to really drive the, the biochemical process that happens during composting where materials are broken down uh, to the point where they're unrecognizable from their original parts. So if you throw in, you know, I put anything just about in my compost pile, like wine corks go into my compost bin. And, you know, when you're sorting and screening that compost later, if you can still recognize the wine cork at all, it needs to go back into the bin for another round when you're screening out your finished compost. And I guarantee you after a round or two, It'll be gone. You won't be able to notice anything that resembles a wine cork in there. And the same goes for other biodegradable things. I've tried uh, composting cups, like just your standard coffee cup you get at your local whatever. Like around here, we have Wawa. Yeah. Uh, yeah you can try compost, and, and they disappeared. But the thing that was left behind was that the plastic, the very thin plastic layer that exists in every coffee cup so that, you know, your coffee doesn't leak out and go everywhere by the time you get to work. And there's a tiny thin layer of plastic in there that'll stick around. It's not, you know, plastic's not compostable. You know, only that um, PLA stuff that's made out of corn is actually compostable. And even then, that kind of stuff isn't really compostable in the backyard. Not very well, anyway. 
If you, in your composting activities in your backyard, if you're getting steam that comes out of your compost pile, you are doing phenomenally well. Pat yourself on the back right now if you've ever seen steam coming out of your compost pile. That means you're doing a good job, you're mixing materials correctly, and you're getting a temperature gain in your small backyard pile. Because most backyard situations are actually just aging organic matter, um, is what I like to say. Um, just because if it's not being commercially done, it's really just kind of aging organic matter, which there's nothing wrong with that. Aging organic matter in the backyard, you're keeping it out of the landfill, you're making your own soil amendment, that's a win-win in my mind. And yes, it's just easy to call it all compost, um, but for me, if it's not commercially made, you're just not going to get the same benefit out of it, the same biology the same disease suppression because compost, well-made compost can help suppress plant diseases in soil. Um, so you just, you don't get all those benefits unless it's commercially made. So shouldn't, shouldn't prevent you from doing it in the backyard because it's absolutely necessary and crucial. Everyone should be composting in their backyard and then using that compost in the garden because it is some of the best amendment you can possibly get. You made it yourself, uh, to, you know, worth your time, but it is essentially free stuff. Um, so, but yeah, not all composts are made equally. And, um, it, if you're, if it's important to you, um, to know what your compost is made from, then you should ask your supplier what the compost material is made from. Because if you don't want to use compost that's made from sewage sludge, for example, you need to know what you're putting down. If you don't want to use compost made from, uh, you know, the city's leaf collection program because you're concerned about the leaf collection machine sucking up a bunch of oil or whatever else, then, you know, you need to know what your stuff is made from. Uh, but, um, yeah, uh, compost, I can't get enough of it. I love to mulch my garden with compost. So that way, I just always forget to, like, get a little something to mix into the planting hole. I get so excited about the plant that I have. and I'm going to put it <laughs> in the ground and you know, like a raspberry plant. No, I'm going to get raspberries like next year. and I'll get the thing in the ground and then I'll realize I forgot to go get any kind of amendment whatsoever to put in the planting hole. Um, but if you have compost as your mulch, it's all right there. And a little bit of that is going to get mixed in and you're just planting it. So, um, but I love compost as mulch. It's feeding the soil uh, while it's breaking down. Um, generally speaking, it's pretty fine. So you don't need a whole lot of it to get the mulch job done. Um, it's, dark so that absorbs heat well so it still helps to kind of heat up the soil um and uh you know compost you're feeding the microbes in the soil you're feeding them organic matter so it's another win-win well one ingredient that is not in any of your products is peat help listeners understand why that is and and why that's so important if you're an organic gardener well uh, so peat moss is um, harvested out of the ground from peat bogs. And, um, you know, peat bogs are a very unique ecosystem. Um, you know, very unique um, plants live there. So peat bogs are the home of Venus flytraps, uh, pitcher plants, uh, sundews, all the carnivorous plants, um, and, a, and a whole host of other plants as well, heath, heathers, um, that kind of thing. So peat bogs are a very unique e- ecosystem. Um, 
you know, there, it's a natural product that's derived from plant parts that break down over time and get compressed in the bog. So if you leave peat alone long enough, you know, eight, 9,000 years, it turns into coal. Um, so peat builds up at about a millimeter a year is, um, and so, uh, you're, you know, you're building up this material about a millimeter a year because this stuff has got to break down, got to decompose, and it's little bits of stems and twigs and leaves and ferns and mosses and all kinds of things that grow and die each year, but then they're building up layer after layer uh, every year of older material that compresses and eventually becomes peat. Um, so peat's in the bog, and there's different uh, grades or quality of peat as you go down through the bog, the youngest stuff at the very top is lighter in color. And as you go down through the peat bog, as you harvest more peat, you're getting into the darker materials that are more aged and they have different properties. So the peat industry has been around for a long time, really gotten a full swing in like about the 1950s um, when the, the peat light potting soil was uh, developed by uh, University of Santa Cruz, you know, University of California and uh, Cornell developed this peat light mix. And um, people found that, hey, this makes great potting soil. Uh, and, and it does. And it is a natural material harvested out of the ground. So technically, you know, so it is 100% organic. Um, however, there are, there are alternatives to peat moss. And when you look at anything in... Uh, you know, in life, it, hey, if there's a more sustainable alternative, why not consider it? You know, and we have compost as an alternative that we can use to peat moss. Compost is made locally from materials that are essentially waste products that need to be disposed of. Um, so why not turn that waste product into a valuable resource, i.e. compost, and then use that in your garden instead of peat? Because peat has to be harvested out of the ground, which requires a lot of energy, diesel energy, to do that. Uh, grade it, process it, package it, ship it over the road, burning a lot of diesel the whole way versus compost, which is generally, you know, again, made locally. Um, so there's pros and cons to using it from a, a transportation and harvesting perspective. Um, from a gardener's perspective, you know, peat moss does break down rather quickly in a pot. Uh, anyone who's ever had a hanging basket by the end of summer, you, you put the hose or the watering can on it in the morning, and, you know, you, you've only dumped, a, you know, maybe a gallon's worth of water on that hanging basket or a half gallon, or what, and it just it's running right out the bottom of the pot. You think, mm-hmm. oh, well, my plant is watered. Look, the water's running through. When, in fact, the peat moss kind of shrinks in the container, and so the water will just go around this, like, cube of peat and then go out the bottom of the pot. So it doesn't absorb water very well by the end of the season. Um and, uh, you know, the pH can swing wildly and go much more low than that optimum that I was talking about earlier, up right around 6.5. Um, so the pH can, can go pretty low, which plants don't like that either. Okay. Um, peat doesn't have the beneficial biology that compost does. Compost has fantastic beneficial biology. So, I mean, those are a few of the reasons why we choose to use compost instead of peat moss. Um, Okay. Now you started out with one potting soil mix and then you decided you didn't want to be a one trick pony and you started offering many different products. Do you want to walk us through your product line? 
Sure. Um, yeah, the, the, the premium blend potting soil was the first item. The second item we made was the container blend potting soil. Because we did find that some people um, really wanted a potting soil that was more similar to the peat-based mixes they'd been using. Okay. And so the container blend is, is very well-drained. It's very similar to peat-based mixes. So the container blend is our all-purpose outdoor potting soil. And the premium blend is for indoor houseplants or um, any place exceptional moisture retention is needed. So you got a four-inch window box that dries out every day. You've got to water it twice a day. If you try our premium blend, you know, it'll, it'll probably go a day or two in between watering. Um, so, uh, you know, vegetables also do really well in the premium blend because it has more compost, more worm casting. The container blend potting soil is more well-drained. It has more rice, it has rice hulls in it, and it has um, more coconut fiber, less less compost. So those are our first two products. And then we developed a planting mix, compost blend. That's for building raised beds, uh, or if you need to amend soil, if you have really poor urban soil, et cetera, where the soil is just really bad, the planting mix compost blend is for, for that. So for building raised beds, we recommend mixing it with topsoil about 50-50. Okay. Um, and you, the topsoil is great because it has clay in it, and the clay does a lot of really good things to the soil. It increases your water-holding capacity and nutrient-holding capacity. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, that's for building raised beds to planting a compost blend. And then after that, we launched our seed-starting blend. Pretty self-explanatory there. It's for, for starting seeds and containers. Yep. Um, and then, where did we go next? With our product line, I think then we launched our worm castings. So we do um, one and five pound bags of worm castings. And, you know, by themselves, like I said, you can mix them into other soils. Um, they're a phenomenal houseplant fertilizer, uh, plant booster, because... They don't smell bad. They smell nice and earthy. A lot of organic fertilizers don't smell great. Okay. They might smell a little fishy or a little mealy. And so um, it's a great kind of a pep up for, for houseplants to put a, uh, about a quarter cup of castings on a, on a houseplant. So do, do I have to mix uh, it in? I've never done that before. So do I have to mix it into the houseplant or do I just put it right on top? You can put it right on top because the you know when you're watering in your plant, That'll slowly, um, you know, work it in over time. So that's that's fine. Just put it right on top of an existing house plant. Does it kind of revitalize uh, them, or what does it do for them? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it'll it'll green them up, and you know, gives them a little boost because it's the fertilizer value in castings is negligible, but it's the biology that's there that can produce a little bit of fertilizer over time, kind of consistently over time because the biology that's in the castings is um, living, growing, dying, reproducing, and that cycle repeats over and over and over again. And the action of them doing that, whether it's they're getting eaten by a protozoa or, um, you know, um, their nutrients are kind of leaching into the soil itself, that's where the the extra value comes from. But the worm castings are phenomenal at building soil structure, for the same reason I described earlier with um, bacteria eating the rice hull and leaving behind these sticky substances that, that made the pore space stick around. 
are great at building soil structure. Um, so that's you know a wonderful reason to add them to your mix um, or look for a mix that has worm castings in it. And so just to recap, if if people were going to do that and and buy this worm casting mix from you, or it's just solid or 100% worm castings, how much would they add to, let's say, just a typical house plant in an average size pot? I'd say about a quarter cup okay. of plant. And, you know, when you're planting uh, annuals or vegetables in the garden for the year, same thing. You, put a, you know, at most a quarter cup per plant is a, a nice little boost right in the root zone at, at planting time. All right, that sounds good. So, so, so it was worm castings, and then we made our mulch product. I never thought we'd be making a mulch, but customers were asking for it, and uh, you know, people people buy it. We definitely it's not the cheapest mulch on the market, but it is 100% organic. So a lot of people do dig that aspect of it. Um, it's made with bark, fine, and compost. We mix the two together to make the mulch. So. Uh, it's a very fine mulch. You only have to use about an inch or so to achieve good weed control. Um, it stays dark because uh, it has that compost addition to it. It doesn't fade over time. And then after the mulch we made, um, we also have pure rice hulls. We, I mentioned that earlier. We do that in the, uh, as well. Uh, we already talked about how to use those. Yeah. We made our cactus and succulent blend, um, and that was... It's also based on the United States Botanic Gardens recipe for succulent. Um, cactus and succulent is a huge category now. Um, so that's one of the ways we develop new products is by watching trends, seeing what's, what's really hot. And Okay, cactus and succulents, why not? Sure. Very different than, than most of the mixes that are on the market now. They're just basically peat and perlite. Um, you know, our mix has some chunkiness to it. It's got sand and shale and some biochar in there. Uh, it's getting rave reviews by all the Cactus Society folks that are in our region. Um, so that's, that's a pretty new product as well. Um, we developed our root zone feeder packs. So that is going to be uh, it's a great item. It's basically every feeder pack has the following ingredients in it. It has biochar. There's a huge dose of mycorrhizae, tazomite, oyster shell flour. Uh, and there's also a 4-2-2 starter fertilizer in there. So the biochar and the mycorrhizae, those are yield boosters that really help push plant growth. And the azomite and the oyster shell, those provide trace minerals, a lot of calcium. Um, so you just use one per plant, and it's so easy to use. You, just, you take the pack, it's in like a tea bag format, and you put it right next to the root ball at planting time, and that's it. And then you finish your planting. And, and it's so easy to use. It's a feeder pack. We gave it the name. Forget about it. <laughs> it's, so easy, it's so easy to use. You just put it down there and forget about it. Now, do you have to um, tear the pack open, or you just literally throw the pack in and it and the outside dissolves? How does that work? Yeah, that's a great question. A lot of people ask that. You, you can just put the pack in the ground uh, right next to the root ball because that pack will degrade pretty quick. Yeah. Um, the biology will eat it away. Um, so when you pull the tomato or pepper plant or whatever it is out of the ground at the end of the year, um, in many cases in our trials, the roots had grown into and all around that feeder pack, and it was still stuck to the roots like a like a big chocolate candy bar. Oh, interesting. And, you know, okay. Definitely, you know, in all cases, you want to grab that off the root, 
throw it back to the soil. Because biochar is a essentially turn of a human lifetime. It's a permanent soil amendment, the lifetime soil amendment. Um, and we we've done a lot of work with biochar over the past seven years. To the point where we we launched this our first product with biochar, which was the feeder pack. Um, we also put it in the cactus blend, and then one of our new products for this year is a biochar blend. What and what is so, biochar? I have to stop you. I don't know what it is. Yeah, so I'll give you the quick version because we could have another hour conversation just about biochar. But <laughs> it's essentially pure carbon that acts as a, a battery in soil. Uh, you ch- once you charge it up uh, with water, nutrients, and beneficial biology, it then becomes a source for the roots as the plants are growing, especially in times of stress. Um, so biochar makes nutrients work better, more efficiently, um, and it, it's a yield booster. Uh, you know, there's a lot of scientific research about biochar. It's based on the terra preta soils of the Amazon uh, that are carbon dated and still there, still functioning when the soils are 2,000 years old. That carbon that's been there, it's still present. Wow. has hasn't gone away yet. So, that's impressive. Uh, it's really good stuff. It's um, With, with uh, biochar, it is a pretty young industry, so um, just like not all composts are made equal, not all biochars are made equal. Some biochars that are being sold are very high pH, uh, very low, um, you know, can be very low carbon content. Uh, and in my opinion, you're kind of, you're looking for that carbon content because that's where the biochar really hits the road. Um, so, but yeah, it's a yield booster. It's a plant growth promoter is the short story. So you're adding it to your soil at very low rates to get a boost in productivity. I'm imagining your place where you're putting all of these ingredients together and I'm thinking about quality control. I'm I'm assuming you use your five senses to, you know, check out product when it's coming in, but then you must have some type of scientific instruments or whatnot that you're using to make sure that the ingredients are quality. Yeah, so we work with our suppliers um extensively on that and they're they're vetted um quite well before we start using them. Uh, there's their products. So, yeah, there's a lot of testing that goes on before we start using, um, you know, in the process of considering a new supplier. Um, all that gets uh, extensively tested, and we're doing soil tests for nutrient content, heavy metal content, pH, um, biology, you know, biological contribution to the mix. All that stuff gets tested. And then, um, yeah, we do periodic, you know, spot checks on um, soils and batches that we're running so that we know where we stand in terms of nutrient content and pH to make sure that we're on track, make sure that there's not, you know, something randomly going wrong with any one of the ingredients, uh, any one of the raw ingredients, raw materials. Um, so, yeah, we do. There's, there's definitely a lot of testing. And, and a, a lot of our products are OMRI listed. That's the Organic Materials Review Institute, O-M-R-I. And they're an independent third-party verifier of organic products. So just like when you go to the store and buy organic milk or bread, it's got that USDA organic seal on the product. Now, the OMRI seal is is for garden products. So if you're looking for organic gardening products at your garden center, if the product has the OMRI listed logo on it, 
then you can buy it with confidence and know that even if you had a certified organic farm, you could use that input on the farm and uh, wouldn't risk losing your certification. So that OMRI listing requires extensive testing, so our products are tested even further than most uh, to verify the organic claims on the package. Wow, time and money, I bet, to get that listing. It is, but we feel it's worth it. And uh, customers have responded. You know, it was um, not widely known when we first started with it, but now it's definitely much more um, known and accepted as a as a qualifier for high quality organic product. So, how about your remaining products? You have tea bags and you have plant foods. Walk us through those. Yeah. So the um, we have uh, partnered with. Um, a company called Sustain, and we use their fertilizers and our seed starting blend, for example, to give the plants a little boost, little seedlings. Um, and they came out with a retail line of, of fertilizers, and our customers have been asking us, hey, when are you guys going to do a fertilizer? Well, a fertilizer plant and a potting soil plant are very different animals, and there was no way we were ever going to start a fertilizer plant. That requires a whole other investment. So when friends of ours uh, at this company made an, uh, a retail-ready line, we thought, hey, we would absolutely love to carry that and offer it to our customers. So uh, they're OMRI-listed fertilizers. Uh, one's an 824, and the other one's a 464. So the 824 is your all-purpose lawn and landscape. The... 464 is um, for fruiting and flowering plants. Okay. Um, but really easy to use. Um, you know, they're non-burning, um, short-term availability, so they're only uh, around for about 45 days. Um, but the compost tea bags are super easy to use. You, just, you take one compost tea bag, drop it in your watering can, let it sit there overnight or while you're at work. You come back to it. You just pour off that liquid. Uh, compost tea and plants get a nice boost out of it. You got to use it all up in just one shot and then you take that soggy tea bag. I would always tuck it into whatever planter was closest on my deck because there's still a lot of fertilizer value to it. It doesn't all go into solution. So, um, yeah, it's kind of like double duty, uh, but great fertilizer really helps to grow solid plants. Doesn't matter if it's uh, vegetables or ornamentals. Good stuff. I love that little tip about kind of the repurposing of that. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. Because it, you know, it still has a lot of value to give. But uh, you know, you can also put it in your some people put it in their compost pile, uh, which will help. You know, it'll help the compost break down. So, well, I'd read online that your company went through a terrible flood a couple of years ago. We did. Yeah, it was um, 2014. It was May first. And uh, if you don't know, the, the two busiest weeks in the garden world are the two weeks of the build-up before Mother's Day. Because a lot of places, at least in our neck of the woods along the East Coast, Mother's Day is like the last frost-free date. That day, you can plant, you know, 99% of the time, you can plant your tomatoes and your petunias, your, your annuals and vegetables outside without worrying that it's going to frost anymore. Okay. So, very busy time of year. But, um, yeah, we had... Um, you know, we've, we've gone through many a storm, um, and this hurricane was passing through, and it dumped a lot of rain on us, but wasn't anything that we hadn't seen before. But um, 
unfortunately, the reservoir that was upstream from us, um, it uh, was not owned by the municipality, owned by private hands. And they made a decision to release flood water uh, from the reservoir. And um, the uh, people who were downstream were affected, like us. Oh. So they're right along the beautiful west branch of the Brandywine River. Very idyllic. Um, but at the same time, we were directly in that water's path. So uh, the water rose three feet in 30 minutes. Oh, my gosh. We did notice right when it, we got lucky that we saw right when it started happening that we were able to get all of our team out of there, out of harm's way. Uh, we got everybody's cars out of the way. Because if we hadn't have acted, everyone's cars would have been toast. Because uh, it was three feet of water that came over the banks. And the reason why we know it was the, um, the, the um, privately owned uh, reservoir upstream is that there's a USGS, uh, U.S. Geological Society, station on the river right next to our property. And you can go online and see the data. And the water temperature plummeted um, uh, over a course of 30 minutes and just you know went way up. So the, those two things alone are what uh, we, we can recognize that it wasn't just storm water. This was a release from the, you know, from the up the way. So... Um, but you know, like I said earlier, it's all about your people in any organization and our guys were troopers. They came in, we cleaned up, we, we lost, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in product because we had to get rid of all the raw materials. We had to restack every pallet that came, that, that got flooded out because the bottom layers of the pallet were toast and, you know, the top layers are still fine. They didn't go underwater, but. Um, yeah, we had 16 inches of water in our entire shop and warehouse. And so we had to get rid of a lot of product and start over. And we dug out and scrubbed that warehouse top to bottom, just like you would after any major flood event. You know, uh, according to FEMA guidelines, pressure washed the whole thing twice and brought material back in and started back up again. Wow. So we were down for about nine days. It was like May 1st to May 9th before we uh, started back up. Is that so. probably the most adverse situation you've had to face in your business, do you think? Yep. That, that was it, for sure. Yeah. I, uh, you know, definitely don't want to go through that again. We didn't have flood insurance at the time. We were a small company, and we thought, oh, we don't need flood insurance. But now we have flood insurance. So <laughs> if it happened again, we'd be financially okay um but uh yeah that was a big hit to our little company that uh still had a ripple effect uh you know even till today but for the most part we're moving beyond that now wow and so you said the the peak time is the two weeks before mother's day and this really had to be just the worst possible timing for you guys worst possible timing lost a lot of potential uh, sales because a lot of our customers you know we we're um, we're a bit more nimble than the big companies, and we allow our customers to buy in a just-in-time basis. And if you want to buy two pallets every week, and then sell it on the weekend, and then buy two more and sell them on the weekend, we let a, you know, a lot of people do that, and we're known for that. Because otherwise, with, when you work with the bigger corporations, they require you to buy a full truck, and you know that's a lot for for some of these little garden centers, um, and that's all they need for the whole year, kind of thing. 
Whereas with us, we're flexible. And so oh, you sell out of one side, not the other. One popular, one side more popular than the other one today. Oh, great. You can buy whatever you want. And that way you're keeping only what you need in stock. Um, so we were used to that. But yeah, it just we, we just lost sales that we couldn't gain back at that point. Um, because, you know, once the time has passed, the time has passed. And, yeah. Um, if you, you know, telling the customer, like, we're so sorry, we'll get it out as soon as we can. I mean, they, they understood and, um, you know, which is great to work with understanding customers. But at the same time, customers are in their store. Customers need something to buy. They're just going to buy something else because yours isn't on the shelf and available. So once you miss the sale, you just, you can't get it back. It's not like people go to the grocery store every week and they're buying milk every week. So, hey, they didn't buy it this week, whatever, they're just going to buy it next week. Once you do your gardening, it's kind of like, well, I don't need any more potting soil, you know? Yes. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was not fun, but, um, thankfully we, uh, you know, made it through and, um, had a lot of support from our customers. We, we did an Indiegogo campaign to try to, offset things a little bit and, and offered a lot of really great things to people that supported us financially. Um, but, uh, and that, that helped out a little, um, but you know, mainly just <laughs> that just paid for the cleanup. So, um, you know, cause it was quite expensive because we had to rent machines and, and, uh, but you know, our family and friends came to our rescue and we had uh, the crew in there, like 17 people one day helping to clean. It didn't work for us. They were just, they just came in to help. They were, friends of our employees, friends of, you know, friends of mine, friend, you know, just, uh, it was really nice to see the community come out and help us. Amazing. Amazing. Wow. Well, Mark, I can't thank you enough for all your time today, not only sharing the story of the company, but helping us understand a little bit more about your organic soil and things we should be looking for, understanding those ingredients better. I think it'll make us all better gardeners. And when we're thinking about additives, things like rice hulls or worm castings, you know, these things can make a huge difference. And for people who are committed to trying to go organic this year, they can really make it a lot easier transition, maybe easier than what people realize. So I can't thank you enough. This has been really wonderful. Yeah, right on. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, I was really stoked to hear from you and to, come talk about gardening. Like I said, I always like talking about gardening with other people. And anytime you want to talk about soils, because I'm sure, you know, we basically we scratched the surface today, but uh, I know that we, there's a couple other channels that, that you have to, to keep the conversation going. So yeah, I'm all about it. That sounds great. Now, do you have any uh, parting piece of wisdom you'd like to share with folks about going organic this year, about trying to have an organic experience for their garden in 2017? Any pieces of advice or experiences that you might want to share with them that they can benefit from? I would say that pay special attention to the soil because it is all about having good soil to um, have that beneficial biology working for you because uh, they are tiny little workers doing the work for you so you don't have to work as hard. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're, they make their own fertilizer um, they keep plants healthy. So start with the soil. Uh, make sure that you're uh, mulching with high-quality materials, um, that you're treating your vegetable gardens well, adding high-quality compost to that every year. Make sure you're fertilizing organically because the combination of organic fertilizer with organic soil amendments is the best combination to really spur plant growth. 
you know, biochar is an amazing soil amendment. I highly recommend people try it because it, it, it's the real deal for improving yields in the garden. Um, so biochar is absolutely wonderful. But, you know, another big thing about being organic is, um, you know, I realize that none of us like to see insects in our garden. And, you know, I'm not, whenever you do see insects in the garden, give nature some time to get in there and take its course. Just because you see aphids doesn't mean you have to go grab a jug of something that'll kill them and spray them with it. Because odds are, if you leave them alone for long enough, the lady beetles will come in, lay their eggs, and then you have lady beetle larvae running around eating them, or something else will come along and eat them. You know, nature exists as, uh, you know, something's providing food for something else. And, you know, if we don't spray in our gardens, you're going to get more butterflies laying eggs. And just because you see a caterpillar munching on something... Unless you know what it is, please don't kill it right away. Because what if that was a tiger swallowtail and you just killed it? Well, you know, you could have a tiger swallowtail flying around your garden. If you have kids, you know, that's even more cool. Because what if you see the chrysalis and then you could see that hatching? You know, you know, being an organic gardener is about working with nature, understanding the, the, the ebb and flow, the rhythms of nature. And when you do that, not only do you gain a greater appreciation of the natural world, but... You know, you can see these things happening in your garden that they don't cost you a dime. You just have to wait, be patient, uh, to then witness some of these amazing things that can happen. So, um, so that's my other big thing with organic gardens is that a lot can happen just by nature taking its course. Uh, and I understand if it's your prize rose and it's covered in aphids, well, you know what? A good stream of water is going to knock most of them off. And same thing, if you see cabbage loopers on your uh, brassicas, of course, don't wait. Just pick them all off with your fingers and then maybe get some uh, BT to hit it with, which is an organic uh, control. Um, But there's lots of ways you can control insects. You don't always have to just spray poison on them. Um, So, yeah, work with your soil, work with Mother Nature. That's the best way to be an organic gardener with less input and, um, you know, greater yield and higher satisfaction. Well, I'd love to hear anyone say uh, sharp streams of water. I had talked to Shane Smith of the Cheyenne Botanic Garden, and he's also the gentleman that wrote some of the earliest books on greenhouse gardening. When I interviewed him, that was the first thing he said, and it's always stuck with me. And so I still use that method to this day, just sharp streams of water on uh, my plants when I have um, issues. And when Japanese beetles were on my arbor going after my grapes and my roses, I would just go out there at dusk and early in the morning and do sharp streams of water. And within a couple of weeks, that problem was completely gone. So that was great. Right. I mean, if you're a Japanese beetle, you're getting sprayed with water all the time. You're going to go find someplace else to eat your lunch. You know, <laughs> yeah. you're not going to stick around. So, and same is true for spider mites. You can blast them off. It messes up their life cycle. There's, there's a bunch of things that that's good for. Yeah, right on. Well, I appreciate your time today, Mark. This was just wonderful. And um, look forward to seeing you in the Facebook group for the listener community. That'll be great. Absolutely. All right. Thanks so much. Well, that's it for the show today. I want to thank Mark Highland of Organic Mechanics for being my guest. I want to thank the ladies on my listener advisory board. These are six women that volunteered to be on the board for a quarterly assignment through May. And of course, I met them through the Facebook group and their suggestions and support have been top notch. And they are Beth Engel, 
Denise Pugh, Denise Gardens in North Mississippi, and is a contributing writer to Mississippi Gardener Magazine. Amy Fairbanks von Atchen, Patricia Chandler Newport, she's the owner of Backyard Urban Gardens, and she's out of Kego Harbor, Michigan, Deb Gibson, and Peggy Ann Montgomery of American Beauty's Native Plants. And Peggy was also a guest on the show talking about native plants. I also want to thank my team at Podfly Productions, David Myers, Ein Kadena, and David Gregerson. This is my team of an editor, a copywriter, and a project manager. And without these guys, I just could not get my show out consistently every single week. So rain or shine, they make sure that the show gets published, and I can't thank them enough. Just a reminder that I'll have all of the generous information that Mark shared over at my website at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six. F-T-M-A-M-A.com, and it's the home of my podcast, Still Growing. And when you head over there, just click on the menu, and it'll say podcast. And right there, you'll see the show notes for this episode and all of the links that Mark mentioned, as well as the links for all of the articles that I mentioned in the Garden News Roundup. It's all there in the show notes. And while you're there, click on the Facebook group. It's right up there in the menu. It says Facebook group, and it'll take you right to the group. And then you can just click to join. I'd love to meet you in the Facebook group for the podcast. And if you don't find it on my website, you can always go to Facebook and search Still Growing Podcast Group, and our group will pop right up. Well, by the time this show airs, I should be three weeks post-op. My recovery should be well underway, and I'm hoping to be resuming my regular daily activities, albeit left-handed. I'm confident I'll manage. I hope you guys are having a great time picking out your veggies and your plants for your 2017 garden. It's an exciting time of year. Have a great week, everyone. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a SixFootMama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is a weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow.